Well, good morning. As always, it is a great honor and privilege to have this opportunity to worship together and to preach to you from the Word of God. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing in our study through the book of Malachi, and so I do invite you and encourage you to take a copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Our text this morning is going to be Malachi 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 15. And the title of today's sermon is God's Covenant Faithfulness. Let us read the Holy Word of God, which Christ uses to sanctify and cleanse His bride. Begin the reading in the last verse of chapter 2 down through verse 15 of chapter 3. This is God's Word. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, Do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of our fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Thus the reading of God's word. And may his people express belief in that word by saying, Amen. Let us pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Holy Father, we are continuing this morning in the study of this wonderful book that you inspired over 2,000 years ago. And we come this morning with a desire to hear you speak. We come with a desire to have you reveal more of yourself to us. And Lord, I pray as you reveal yourself to us that we would be granted eyes to see and ears to hear 
and in seeing and hearing that our faith would be increased and that our love for you and for one another would be magnified. Lord, you are truly the great, unchanging God. We know that your love for us is unchanging. For your essence is love. And Father, we know that you work all things together for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Father, we also know that you are a holy God. And because you are holy, you demand that we too would be holy. Lord, we know in your great love that you not only justify us and declare us holy, but even now you have begun a process of sanctifying us and conforming us into the image of your Son. Lord, thank you for loving us so much and too much to leave us in our sin. And Father, although we thank you for this great reality, Lord, also help us to know that the process of being conformed into the image of Christ is not always pleasant, but it is always good. And it is a result of your great covenant love for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your justifying grace and your sanctifying grace that is made available to us through the person and work of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, before we dive into our text this morning, I want to take a few minutes to recap the major theme of this book as we have seen it worked out in chapters 1 and 2 of Malachi. Now, at the outset of this series, I gave the following summary statement regarding the primary theme of this book. And that statement should be printed in bold on your handout, and it is as follows. The primary theme of the book of Malachi is to highlight God's redemptive and covenantal love by showing that God's covenant of grace originates in the love of the Father and that the conditions attached to his gracious covenant are not dependent on the weakness of fallen men, but rather on the covenant-keeping Christ resulting in the everlasting blessing of all those who are united to the Christ by faith. And so my goal in this sermon series was not to exegete every verse or draw out every practical application that can be gleaned from this wonderful book, for to do so would take at least a few months. But rather, my goal has been simply this, to show that the most important truths that are essential for you to grasp revolve around that central message of the whole of Scripture which is the redemptive and covenantal love of God for his people in Christ. And so my desire is that you who are believers would be enabled to see God's love for you in Christ on every page of the book of Malachi. And I hope that has been the case thus far. And I also desire that you would learn to look for God's redemptive and covenantal love for you in Christ in all of your study of God's word. My, my desire is that when you have your private devotions, when you have your family worship, when you open the Word of God, that on every single page that you will see God's love for you in Christ, on every page. If we understand that is the, that is the goal of Bible study, that will change the way that you do your individual Bible study. It's not just about checking a box. It's not just about finding some practical information to help you live a better life. No, it's about seeing the love of God for you on every page of Scripture. That's the goal of studying our Bibles. Also, as I preach to those of you who may be unbelievers, my goal is that you would see on every page of the book of Malachi that your only hope is that you too would be brought under the banner of God's redemptive and covenantal love in Christ. That, that is your only hope of salvation, to be brought under that banner. And on every page of Scripture, you should see that. So let's quickly do a recap of chapter number one. In chapter one, we saw God revealing that his gracious purposes for his covenant people is rooted in God's special electing love. The book opens with that mind-blowing and heart-enlarging statement in verse two of chapter one. There it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And so at the very beginning of this book, we see that God's gracious and covenantal relationship with his people is founded upon his love. This great plan of God to bind himself covenantally to a people before the foundation of the earth 
and then in time to redeem that people through the work of his son, this great plan, this great decree of God finds its genesis, its very origin in the love of God, in the very essence and being of the triune God. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So that's what we learn from chapter one, that this covenantal love of God is rooted in his very essence, and his very essence is love. Well, chapter one then goes on to record God exposing the sins of Israel, both in general as a nation and in particular the sins of the priesthood. And what we saw was that at the heart of Israel's sin was the fact that they were not thankful. They did not appreciate the special electing covenantal love of God for them. And we saw that this was a great and heinous sin in the eyes of God. In short, their great sin was, a, was that they did not love God. And may that never be said of us, that we do not love God, that we're not thankful and appreciative of his, of his special electing grace in our lives. But also in chapter 1, not only do we see God exposing sins, but we also see that God's plan to address the sins of his covenant people, Israel, was not to wipe them off the face of the earth, not to, to do away with them, but rather to expand and magnify his special electing covenantal love beyond the borders of Israel. And what, a, what an amazing God who, who does things in a way that we do not expect. We would expect God in response to this sinful ingratitude to withdraw his blessings. But instead, God plans to expand his mercy and his love to include people from every nation and not just ethnic Jews. See, in the Old Covenant, it is as if God has his covenantal arms of love wrapped around the Jewish people. And in a sense, he keeps the other nations away. And then in response to Israel's sin, you would think he would just withdraw his love from everyone. But instead, what he does is, is, is unexpected. He Instead of just casting Israel aside and then turning to the Gentiles, what he does is he expands his, arm, his covenantal arms of love to include every nation. And therefore, he, he invites and brings people from every nation into his covenant people. So he doesn't do away with Israel and then turn to the Gentiles. No, he, he brings the Gentiles in. And so we see that he expands and magnifies his gracious covenantal love. And this leads us to chapter 2. And what we saw in that chapter is that God strips away the pride of men. He does this by showing that Israel had broken covenant. The priesthood broke the covenant of Levi. Notice verse 8 of chapter 2. There it says, You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And further, the men of Israel were guilty of breaking covenant with God by abusing the marriage covenant. Notice verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? And so I think the point of God in highlighting the fact that Israel had broken covenant with him was to drive home the point that God's plan to expand and magnify his grace beyond the borders of Israel was not going to be dependent upon the weakness of fallen men. Brothers and, sisters, brothers and sisters, that is what makes the covenant of grace a covenant of grace because it is not dependent upon you, but rather it is dependent upon God himself. He takes on the task of meeting the conditions of the covenant. We saw that highlighted for us in Malachi 2. In, in that chapter, we saw the failures of Israel, or as we saw the failures of Israel to keep the covenant, we also saw that Jesus was God's plan to bring about his gracious, redemptive purposes. We saw this displayed in the following ways. First, the priests of Israel failed to keep covenant. We saw that. But Christ, as the faithful priest, will not fail. He will keep the covenant and in so doing, bring life and peace to all of his people. Secondly, we saw that although many of the men in Israel were not faithful to the marriage covenant, we saw that Christ was pictured as the faithful husband who never breaks covenant with his bride, the church, that is you and I. 
He loves his bride with an everlasting love. He is the faithful husband. And then thirdly, we saw that although as a result of the unfaithfulness of Israel, they were, because they were being unfaithful to the marriage covenant, they were in a very real way threatening God's promise to bring forth from Israel a godly offspring. However, God in his sovereign providential mercy intervened. And thus, Jesus is pictured for us as that godly offspring who would be born as a son of Israel and who would bring many sons to glory. And so in conclusion, what we saw in chapter 2 was that the covenant of grace, which is the fulfillment of God's gracious and redemptive purposes, is dependent not upon fallen men, but upon the covenant-keeping Christ. That is absolutely essential for us to grasp. The way of salvation is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon what God has done in Christ. And so with that recap and summary complete, let us draw our attention now back to our text this morning. So let's notice chapter 2, verse number 17. It reads, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? And so we see as chapter 2 comes to a close, God is still exposing the sins of Israel. He is still explaining, as it were, the severity of the situation. The nation was in a mess. They had become very calloused in their sins. We know in Isaiah 5.20, God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And then in Romans 1.32, we see that the, that the end of the road, as it were, when God gives a people up to their sins, was as follows. That verse says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so what we have here at the end of Malachi 2 is a people that had gone as far as you can go into sin. And that is when you know what is good and what is evil, and yet you deliberately say that with that which is good is evil, and you not only practice evil, but you give approval to those who practice such things. Further, what we see in this verse shows that the people had lost faith in God, or we could even say that they had lost respect for God. They had gotten to a point that they had taken God's patience. They took the reality that God is slow to anger, and they twisted it into believing that God didn't care about sin. In Romans 2, Paul says the following, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This is exactly what the nation of Israel was doing. They had mistook God's forbearance to mean that God doesn't care. They asked, where is the God of justice? Dear ones, they were mocking the God of glory when all the while his patience was meant to lead them to repentance. And brothers and sisters, we see that in people today, don't we? I've seen and heard people who would arrogantly mock God as they sinned. People might say things like, well, I better be careful. God might strike me dead. Maybe you've heard people say that when they sin. And then they go on and sin. All the while not believing that God will strike them dead in due time. Psalm, 93, Psalm 90 verse 3 reminds us that God is the one who returns us to the, to the dust. God is the one who gives you your life, and God is the one who takes your life. The Proverbs remind us, a fool makes mock at sin, which is ultimately to mock the God of justice. But the scriptures also remind us that God will not be mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Well, this, I think, paints the picture of the situation that God is about to address. And that brings us to Malachi chapter 3 and God's plan to address this awful situation. Let's notice verse 1 together. 
God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, in this verse, we have to carefully distinguish who is who in order to understand it correctly. It begins by saying, Behold, I will send my messenger to prepare the way before me. And so we have three personal pronouns used in this verse, I, my, and me. And so the question is, who is the I, my, and me in this verse? Well, in the context of the passage, this is clearly referring to God. It is referring to Yahweh or Jehovah. It is the Lord of hosts, as the conclusion of the verse clearly indicates. And as we move forward in this verse, it says that God or Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, will send his messenger, and he, that is the messenger, will prepare the way before God. Now, who is the messenger that will prepare the way before God? Well, is it Malachi? Remember, at the beginning of this study, we saw that the name Malachi means messenger. That's what the word means. Well, the answer there is no. The context does not lend itself to concluding that this messenger is Malachi. You see, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, have a future-oriented context. That is, the context here is that Malachi is making a prophecy about something that will happen at a later date. Further, when we see that Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5 serve as parallel verses, we see that Malachi is not referring to himself as the messenger, but rather he is referring to Elijah, the prophet, as this messenger of the Lord. So, does that mean that the messenger that God will prepare to, that, that God will send to prepare the way is Elijah? Well, again, the answer would be no. Now, we can't make that conclusion from the book of Malachi itself, but because we follow the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture, we are able to conclude that Elijah is not the messenger that will prepare the way before God. And so we, we, can, we can make that conclusion, and we must make that conclusion, because the New Testament in multiple places, such as Matthew 17, identifies that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophesied messenger. And so the messenger who prepares the way in verse 1 is John the Baptist. So we've identified two who's in this passage. We have to identify one more who. Well, the verse then goes on to identify one with the term Lord. Well, who is this Lord who will suddenly come to his temple? Well, we know that the temple being referred to is God's temple. And yet we see Yahweh speaking of this Lord as someone that is separate from him. Now, at first glance, this is a bit tough to think through, but clearly the answer here is that the one referred to as Lord is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus the phrase messenger of the covenant refers in this verse not to John the Baptist, but rather to Christ. Further, because the way that Yahweh speaks of this Lord, who is coming in a way that is distinct from himself and yet interchangeable with himself, points to the reality that the Christ who will come is God. The word was with God and the word was God, as John will say in his gospel. Dear ones, this is a clear example of the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is but one true God, and yet this one God exists eternally as three distinguishable persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a mystery that is beyond our ability to comprehend, but it is a mystery that has been revealed to us, and thus we must believe it and declare it exactly in the way that it has been revealed. Now, we've established from verse 1 that God's plan to address the sins of his covenant people is to send John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Christ, who is the messenger of the covenant of grace. That's what verse 1 teaches. Now, let us look at the way in which the Christ is going to accomplish the work of addressing the sins of his covenant people. Let's read together verses 2 
through 4. But who can endure the day of his coming? The his there is referring to Christ, this messenger of the covenant. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he, that is Christ, is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And so as we move into these verses, we see that the coming messenger of the covenant promised in verse 1 will come as a refining fire and as a fuller's soap. Now, both of these images point to the reality that Christ is coming to do a purifying work and that this work will be done thoroughly and severely. The first image is that of a refiner's fire. Now, this image, of course, is meant to make us think about the intensity of the refiner's fire, which, of course, is necessary in order to melt down precious metals and remove the dross from the metals, leaving purified gold and silver. We've all seen a refiner's fire before, that, that deep, red, glowing heat. That the imagery is, made, is meant to make us think about that intensity, that the Christ is coming with that sort of intensity to purify his people. Likewise, the second image, a fuller soap, is meant to make us think of the work of a fuller. Now, this is a term that is not familiar to us today. So what is a fuller? And what is a fuller's soap? Well, a fuller was someone who cleaned clothes. And the process by which they did this was to wash the clothes using a strong lye soap, something akin to bleach. And after the clothes were washed with this strong lye soap, the clothes would be placed on rocks and beaten with sticks. And, and the result of that process would be that the clothes would be cleaned both from dirt and impurities and also that the clothes would be soft and supple. So that was the, the result of this work of the fuller and the fuller's soap. And so these images reveal that the Christ is coming to address the sins of his covenant people by doing a work of purification on their behalf. In verse 3 it says that the Messiah will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Now, I think it would do us well at this point to stop and think about the mercy of God that is being displayed in this verse. Last week in chapter 2, we looked extensively at the failures of the sons of Levi. We saw in chapter 2 that the priesthood was guilty of breaking the covenant of Levi. Notice what it says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. Speaking of these sons of Levi, he says, But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And so in light of that, when we read in chapter 3, verse 3, that the Messiah is going to come and purify the sons of Levi, that is meant to leave us in awe of the grace of God. Because what did the sons of Levi deserve? They deserved to be destroyed. But Christ has said, I'm going to come and purify the sons of Levi. That is a remarkable grace. And so the question we need to ask here is this. Do we see this promise that the Messiah is going to purify the sons of Levi being fulfilled in the New Testament? Well, the answer is yes. I think in two ways. First, literally. And secondly, by way of analogy. First, if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Now we know in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we have the record of the office of deacon being instituted in the church. This office of deacon was in response to a great need in the church that had risen to a level that was threatening the unity of the church, as well as taking the apostles away from their duty of prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit greatly blessed in this situation 
and the church appointed seven godly men to the office of deacon. And as a result of this, we have a remarkable statement recorded for us in, in verse 7 of chapter number 6. Notice that verse with me. There it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And listen to the next phrase. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There we have it. A great many of the sons of Levi were saved. And they became obedient to the faith. They did exactly what it said they would do in Malachi 3.3. They brought offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Now, when we see God's promises being fulfilled in the, in the Bible, that should make us say, wow. That should, that should take our breath away. And it should be a, a reason in, uh, for us to have great hope because, of, because that same God who has fulfilled those promises will also fulfill the promises that he's made to you. He's promised you that if you trust in Christ, you will be saved. If you trust in Christ, you will be raised up on the last day. If you trust in Christ, you will have eternal life. And so the same God that kept his promises then will also keep his promises now. And so this is meant to encourage you in your faith. God promised that he would purify the sons of Levi. He did it. God promises if you trust in Christ, you'll be saved. He will do that. Secondly, What we, what we will see take place in the context of the New Covenant is that the concept of the priesthood will be expanded beyond just the sons of Levi or just beyond the concept of a few within the covenant community, community being priests. But rather, everyone in the context of the New Covenant are priests to God. Turn, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. And let's notice verses 5 and verse number 9. Verse Peter 2, verse 5. That verse states, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then notice verse number 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Brothers and sisters, wrapped up in what we see here in Malachi 3.3 is the promise that God will make us as a people, you and I, into a priesthood that has been purified by Christ himself so that we might bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Well, then we move to Malachi 3, verse number 4. Here we are reminded that in chapters 1 and 2, it wasn't just the priests who were guilty before God, but rather the whole of the nation had sinned against God. Well, in verse 4, we see that the refining fire comes to purify the whole of God's people. That is what is meant by the reference to Judah and Jerusalem. And what we see promised here is that it will not just be the priest who will be purified by the Messiah, but that, but that the whole of God's people will make offerings that are pleasing in the sight of God. And that's very important for us to grasp. In the context of the new covenant, all of God's people will make offerings that are pleasing in the sight of God. That is because the very essence of the new covenant of which Christ mediates is the purifying work of regeneration and subsequent sanctification. In this new covenant, what God will do is he will take out your heart of stone and he will give to you a new heart, a heart that desires to obey and make offerings which are pleasing in the sight of God. It's the very essence of this new covenant of which Christ mediates. And dear ones, the purifying work of the Messiah is truly a thorough work. Thus, the imagery of the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. It is a work in which he cleans us up from the inside out. In the new covenant that Christ administers, what happens is that Christ purifies his people not just by giving them an external law, 
but by changing and purifying our hearts internally so that we freely desire to keep the law of God. He places within our hearts a new principle of love, and that love desires to express itself through obedience, true obedience to the laws of God. This is the way that Christ administers his covenant. And consequently, because the two are one and the same, this is the way that the king exercises his rule within the context of his redemptive kingdom. There's some pretty weighty theology wrapped up in that verse. Listen to the following verses, which makes this absolutely clear. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. John 14, 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And then 2 John 1, 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And so the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about a new and better covenant is realized in the power of the king displayed in his sovereign and miraculous work of granting spiritual life to dead men. By giving them a new heart, thus placing within them a principle of love that freely desires to obey the commandments of the king. And so the question you must ask yourself this morning are obvious. Have you been washed by the fuller's soap? Have you been purified by the refiner's fire? Have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ? Have you experienced the God of grace taking out your heart of stone and giving you a new heart that desires to obey the commandments of God? Dear ones, I must make myself clear on this point. What must take place if you are truly, if you are truly to be a Christian is not merely that you're cleaned up on the outside. You can learn to dress right, you can learn to talk right, you can learn to outwardly act right, and thus be accepted as one who truly possesses a new heart, while all the while being a whitewashed tomb and full of dead man's bones. And so the question before you is this, have you been saved? Have you been changed? Because a saved life is a changed life. Do you truly love the Lord? Are you serious about following Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or are you a fake? Are you one who has deceived yourself into thinking that all is well with your soul when absent from your very heart is a true desire to love and obey Christ? The old hymn, I think, gets it, gets it right. Trust and obey. But there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. And so if this transformation has not happened in your life, then you are standing outside of God's covenant. You're standing outside of his kingdom. And so what should you do if you are outside of God's covenant? Well, you must submit yourself to the refiner's fire and to the fuller's soap. You must come to Christ with a willingness not just to be forgiven of your sins, but to have your sins stripped and purged from your very heart. Everybody wants to be forgiven of their sins. The mark of if you've been saved is this. Do you want to be freed from your sins? Do you want to be cleansed from your sins? That's the mark of being saved. But dear ones, take heart. For if you come to Christ confessing your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you desire to be cleansed from all your sins? That's the question. And you can't clean yourself up good enough. For your righteousness is, is filthy rags. It's not good enough. It will never meet the standard. And so your only hope is to come to Christ. For he is a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. And when he gets done with you, you will be made fit for heaven. That's your only hope. So come to Christ. 
Well, at this time, let us turn our attention to verse number five. That verse reads, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Well, here in this verse, Malachi reveals to us that not only will, will Christ come as a refining fire to his covenant people, but he will also come as a consuming fire to the wicked. The scriptures make it clear that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, for he is a consuming fire. This verse is meant to be a stark reminder to all who read this prophecy from Malachi that God is not to be mocked. He will be a swift witness against the wicked. Now, we've talked about the fact that God is slow to anger and that his justice, it moves slowly. And his patience is is meant to ultimately lead sinners to repentance. But when justice does come, it comes suddenly. It comes swiftly. It catches the wicked off guard. Psalm 73 states that God sets the wicked in slippery places, and he makes them fall to ruin. And then listen to this most frightening warning. The psalm says, they, that is the wicked, they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And so whether the wicked person dies or Christ returns while they are still alive, they will be destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. And so, dear ones, let us heed the words of Psalm 2 that says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But here's the gospel in that same verse. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, now let us turn our attention to verse number 6. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, what does this verse mean? Well, this verse teaches us two great truths. On the one hand, it teaches us something of the nature of God himself. And on the other hand, it reveals to us how this aspect of the nature of God is a great comfort to the people of God and a great terror to the wicked. First, God states that he does not change. Well, this statement reveals that God in his very essence does not change. The theological term here is that God is immutable. That is, he does not and cannot change. Now, this immutability of God extends to all that pertains to God. It includes his very essence. It includes his divine perfections or attributes, and it includes his decree or purposes. And so the immutability of God is grounded or based upon his very nature. In other words, what we mean when we say that God is immutable is not just that he is faithful or reliable in a way that a man might be faithful or reliable. You see, a man might be faithful, he might be reliable, he may keep his promises, but a man might also be unfaithful or unreliable, and he may break his promises. And so unfaithfulness is a possibility with man. In fact, we can say unfaithfulness is inevitable in man in a sinful state. But God is not a man that he should lie or the son of a man that he should repent. When it comes to God, it is absolutely guaranteed that he will be faithful for it is impossible for God to change. It is impossible for God to be unfaithful to his promises. God would cease to be God if he changed. And thus, God reveals to us here, among many other places in the Holy Scriptures, that he does not change. And brothers and sisters, herein lies the very foundation of the whole of the message of Scripture. Remember the main theme of Scripture that we've been talking about the past two weeks, that the whole of the Scripture is to reveal the redemptive and covenantal love of God for his people in Christ. This covenantal love of God for his people in Christ is grounded in the immutability of God's very essence. 
and consequently the immutability of his decree. The God who cannot change, the God who cannot change, placed his unchanging and unfailing love upon a people, that is the elect. And he made an unchanging decree before the foundation of the earth that he would save that very people through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's, the whole message of Scripture is grounded in this very verse right here that says, For I, the Lord, do not change. God's very covenant is grounded in his unchanging decree, which is grounded itself in, his, in, in the unchanging nature of God's very essence. And so the fact that God is faithful to his covenant is inevitable because God does not change. Well, now that we've seen that God's covenant is founded upon his unchanging nature, let us look at how this is a great comfort to God's people and a terror to the wicked. Notice what it says in verse 6. Based upon the reality that God does not change, it says, Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now what we see here in the immediate context is this. Because the children of Jacob, that is Israel, was in covenant with God, God does not deal with them as a consuming fire. You see, God's redemptive purpose in this historical covenant, that is the old covenant, was that through Israel, the Messiah would come at the appointed time. And because that was God's redemptive and unchangeable purpose, he would not consume Israel in wrath, despite the fact that is exactly what they deserved as a result of their sin. God is saying, because I am immutable, I will be faithful to my covenant. And thus the purposes of my covenant will be realized. Now, this verse also has direct application to us today under the context of the covenant of grace. In the covenant of grace, God's unchangeable purpose is to bring each and every person in that covenant into a saving union with Christ. And thus, for those of us who are in a covenant of grace with God, we do not experience him as a consuming fire, but rather we experience him, experience him as a refining fire. And dear ones, that makes all the difference. You see, there are only two overarching covenants in the scripture. And consequently, you must be under one or the other. There is no third option. On the one hand, there is the covenant of works with Adam as the federal head. On the other hand, there is the covenant of grace with Christ as the federal head. And so if you are not a believer, if you're not a follower of Christ, this means that you are still in a covenant of works with God. And if you are in a covenant of works with God, this means that you will be judged by God on the basis of Adam's failure in the garden and on the basis of your own failure to obey the to obey the law of God perfectly. The Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. If you stand before the holy God in the day of judgment, seeking to be justified on the basis of your own law keeping, you will experience God as a consuming fire and you will perish eternally. On the other hand, if you are a Christian, this means that you are in a covenant of grace with God. And to be in this covenant with God is to experience him not as a consuming fire, but as that refining fire. To be in a covenant of grace means that God has begun a good work in you, and he will bring it to completion. Now, this work includes both justification and sanctification, and ultimately it includes glorification. Because God is an unchanging God, you can be assured that if you remain in a covenant of works with him, you will perish. But if you are in a covenant of grace with him, you will have life forevermore. Well, this leads us to the next section in our passage. And I will just quickly touch on this section for time's sake. That section is verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3. Now, this section is where we find those verses that are most often used to teach on the subject of tithing. And consequently, uh, these same verses are often twisted and manipulated by the prosperity preachers 
to trick people into giving as a means of basically using God like an investment strategy or as a get-rich-quick get rich plan. <laughs> well, I'm not going to take the time in this series to discuss tithing and Christian giving, although that is a very important topic that deserves the Christian's careful thought and obedience to the revealed will of God. Uh, the reason that I'm not going to do that in this series is because the point of this series is to stick to the main point of each passage. And the main point of this passage, verses 7 through 12, does not have to do with tithing. That's not the main point of the passage. But rather, it is a continuation of the previous point made concerning the unchanging nature of God. That's the point of the passage. In verses 7 through 12, what we, what we see is this. God is saying very plainly, if you come to me on my terms, which are the terms of faith and repentance, with a desire to truly obey me, I will relate to you as those who are in a covenant of grace with me, and thus you will be blessed. However, if you continue to relate to me on your own terms, I will be a consuming fire to you. That's the point of those verses. Now, no doubt there's many other practical lessons that can be drawn from those verses, but due to the limitations of the series, we'll leave off with that. Now, let us turn our attention to verses 13 through 15. Let's read these verses. God says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. Well, the reality is that these verses touch on a theme that is shot through the scriptures. And we could easily spend an entire sermon just on these verses. But in the interest of time, I'm just going to go straight to the point of what these verses are teaching. What is being said here is almost identical to what we saw in chapter 2, verse 17. What God is saying to the Israelites is this. You are acting in unbelief because you think that I do not see the wickedness of evildoers. You think because I am slow to anger that I do not keep a record of their wrongdoings or that at the right time I will bring recompense. Well, we will see that next week that God does in fact keep a book of remembrance. There is nothing that God does not see. And there is no sin that will go unpunished. You see, what the Israelites were failing to understand is that one of the primary ways that God judges the wicked in this life is to give them up to their lust. He gives them what they desire. But in the process of doing so, the wicked harden themselves. And thus what the wicked are doing is storing up wrath for themselves. They're making themselves fat for the slaughter. They are in a very real way like lifeless branches that draw no sap from the vine. And we know what happens to lifeless branches. The longer they sit there, what happens? They dry out more, right? And we also know what happens if you burn a fire. What happens if you put lifeless, dried-out branches on a fire? The fire quickly and ferociously consumes them. Brothers and sisters, it may seem like the wicked are escaping the wrath of God. We look, we look at our world... The world is full of wickedness. We see people being wicked on every side, calling good evil and evil good, and they're celebrating wickedness. And it may seem like they're escaping the wrath of God. But they're not. They are like lifeless branches that God has left to dry out. And when his day of wrath comes, they will be consumed by the living God. Well, brothers and sisters, let us bring this sermon to a conclusion. And I want to do that by highlighting the dual nature of the covenant of grace, which we have seen today is founded upon the immutable nature of our holy God. The first aspect of the covenant of grace that we need to understand is that the grace of this covenant is a pardoning grace. If you are in a covenant of grace with God, this means that God is now for you and not against you. As Romans 8.1 beautifully says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And a, and a side note here quickly. Anytime you see the phrase in Christ in the scriptures, that is the same thing as saying in the covenant of grace. What it means to be in the covenant of grace is to be united to Christ. So every time you see that in the scripture, think, think that in your mind. That's what it means. To be in Christ is to be in the covenant of grace with God. Now, what this verse means, Romans 8.1, is that God has no more wrath against you. Christ Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin, and in so doing, he has extinguished the consuming fire, which is the wrath of God against sin. Picture it this way. Um, is anybody familiar with what a, what a backfire is? If you are a, a firefighter, if you're in a, in a field that's on fire, and say the, the fire's coming at you from this way, right? And the wind's blowing directly at you. And there's a long way to go before you can get to a clear spot. Well, you're not going to be able to outrun that fire, are you? Okay, if you try to outrun that fire, you're going to perish. That consuming fire will consume you. So what do you do? Well, you light a fire on this side of you, and as the wind blows this way, the fire goes that, yeah, that way, right? And what is left where that fire burn, burns ahead of you? Just black ground, right? All the fuel has been consumed. And then if you stand in that place where the fire has been, where all the fuel has been uh, consumed, when this fire comes, it gets to a certain point, what does it do? What does it do? It stops. That's what Christ does on our behalf. He took the consuming fire of God on, on our behalf. And when we stand in Christ, there's no more fuel left. There's no more condemnation left. There's no more wrath left. And therefore, we are pardoned from our sin. We are freed from the very wrath of God himself. And so we all want and we all need to be forgiven of our sin. We all need to have our sins paid for in Christ. And that is what the covenant of grace offers. It offers pardoning grace to all those who would trust in Christ. However, as I said it earlier, the mark of someone who truly has been saved is that not only do they want to be freed from the penalty of sin, but they also desire to be freed from the power and the presence of sin. The second aspect of the covenant of grace is that the grace of this covenant is a purifying grace. It is a grace that leads to transformation. Remember, we stated that the wicked were like lifeless branches that were not drawing sap from the vine and thus were drying out for that day when they will be consumed by fire. Well, the branches that are alive, that are abiding in Christ, that are in this covenant of grace, those branches that are in Christ are dealt with in what way? Are they chopped off to dry out? No. They're pruned. They are cut, but not in a consuming way. They're cut in a purifying way. They're cut in a way which is good for them. And that's just another analogy that says the same thing that our passage has said today. The pruner's shears, the refiner's fire, the fuller's soap are all pointing to the same reality. If God has called you into his kingdom, that is into his covenant of grace, he has called you into that kingdom to struggle against the corruptions of your own heart and to go through a process of killing your sin and being purified from your unrighteousness before you enter into glory. And so in conclusion, the question you must ask yourself is this. Are you willing to be cleansed from your sin? That is what it looks like to live the Christian life. It is a life of putting off and putting on. It is a life of dying to yourself and picking up your cross daily. It is a life of being passed through the refiner's fire. And so my urgent plea to you is this. Come to Christ today, believing that if you trust in him, he will begin a good work in you. And because of his covenant faithfulness, he will complete that work. As it was said of Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Therefore, you, a weak and feeble Christian, you are not consumed. But rather, Christ loves you, and he will never leave you. 
He will never forsake you. And he will raise you up on that last day. And he will present you to himself without spot or wrinkle. And dear ones, you will reign with him forever and ever in the beauty of holiness. That's the point of our passage today from Malachi 3. Let's pray. Holy Father, we have once again been amazed at your great grace that is displayed throughout all the scriptures. We are amazed that because of your love that you set upon us before the very foundation of the earth, that you do not deal with us as a consuming fire, but you deal with us as a refining fire, as one who is purifying us and making us fit to dwell forever with you in glory. Lord, I do pray that we would not take this for granted, that we would not be guilty of of taking for granted the special electing covenantal love of yourself. Father, as we have also seen, you are a holy God and you do not tolerate sin. Sin must be dealt with. And we thank you that you have dealt with sin. You have dealt, you've dealt with it through the process of sending your own son who took your wrath upon himself so that we would not have to face it. And secondly, Lord, you have dealt with sin because you have begun a good work in us that you will bring to completion. You are slowly but surely purging us from our sin and making us more like your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand and we'll sing together hymn number 364, How Firm a Foundation. Thank you. 